Gospel according to John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then if you flip over to verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So far from John, and then if you would turn to 1 Peter, Page 1887. First Peter chapter 1, the apostle has been writing about the fact that we have been given a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 13 he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. To you. Therefore rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in our study of what we confess in the Apostles' Creed, we are busy with the question, who is Jesus? Eight Lord's Days of the Heidelberg Catechism deal with that question, Lord's Days 11 through 19. You're inclined to say, well, what's all, why all the fuss? Well, 
that's a very important question to answer because how you answer it will determine whether or not you are a Christian. Who is Jesus? In the Apostles' Creed, we just said, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, or God's only begotten Son, our Lord. That's not what our Jehovah Witness neighbors confess when they say they believe in Jesus. Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ was a perfect man, that he's a person distinct from God the Father. However, they also teach that before his earthly life, Jesus was a spirit creature, Michael, the archangel who was created by God and became Messiah at his baptism. According to Jehovah Witnesses, Jesus is a mighty one, although not almighty as Jehovah God is. And according to John 1.1 in their Bible, the New World Translation, Christ is a God, not the God, not the Word. And they teach that Jesus was and is and always will be beneath Jehovah and that Christ and God are not co-equal. Well, it's all somewhat rather confusing, but it means Jehovah Witnesses are not Christians in spite of what they may claim. For our Mormon neighbors, Jesus is simply the firstborn of God's children, whereas we were born later. There's no real basic difference between Christ and us other than one of degree. Jesus is no more divine than you and I are, except that Jesus may carry a greater spark of divinity since he was the firstborn. What all this means is, of course, once again, that Mormons are not Christians in spite of what they may claim. For our Muslim neighbors, Jesus is yet another prophet, one to receive incredible respect and so forth. And as we heard lately, as I heard lately from an imam, if as a Muslim you do not believe in Jesus, you are not a Muslim. But he is not the Son of God. Hence our Muslim neighbors are not Christians. Who is Jesus? That question has been debated for centuries and continues to be debated even today, and there's all sorts of different answers to that question. The Christian confession, which many of you said this morning, is I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. Anyone who does not hold to that particular confession and the Trinity is outside of the Christian camp. Now, when we confess that Jesus is the Father's only begotten Son, we're saying thereby that there is a unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Reverend Kivenhoven, who has written a book all about the Heidelberg Catechism, explains our confession concerning Jesus being God's only begotten Son this way, and basically what he's doing is quoting C.S. Lewis. So if you think of that word begotten, begotten comes from beget, which means to become the father of. To beget means to get something of the same kind as yourself. So a man begets children, a beaver begets beavers, a bird begets eggs that become little birds. Humans make cradles, beavers build dams, birds make nests. 
But what they make does not have the nature of the maker, only the mark of the maker. What they have begotten shares their being. I hope you get that. We confess Jesus to be, to use the words of answer 33, to be the eternal, natural Son of God. Now, how all of this works is something that, of the Godhead and something that I really can't wrap my head around. We become fathers and mothers the moment that our children are born. But of God the Father, we confess there was never a time when he was not yet father. And of God the Son, we say there was never a time when he was not the Son. Jesus is God, so that means there was never a time when he was non-existent. And remember the word begotten, says C.S. Lewis, speaks of a shared nature. So it is that in the Nicene Creed we confess that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. So this means, of course, that Jesus is in a different league from us. For while we may speak about Jesus as God's Son and about ourselves as God's children, and while we may speak about Christ as our brother, nonetheless there's a huge gap and difference of meaning here. For if the one who died on the cross of Calvary was not God, but a mere human like us, there would be no such thing as the forgiveness of sins. And if Jesus is not true God, the only begotten Son, then we're putting our faith in a mere man, and that would be utterly meaningless. If Jesus were a mere man, there would be no punch in the gospel, and we would be of all people most to be pitied. But as it is, Jesus Christ is the only natural Son of God. And that makes all the difference. So Jesus is the natural son. He belongs to the family and comes by it honestly. But we are added to the family by adoption, which is by sheer grace. And the wonderful thing about God's adoption policies is that they're wide open. He accepts people of all races, colors, nationalities, languages, abilities, inabilities. And, and John writes, Yet to all who receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or of human decision or of husband's will, but born of God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. By grace, the Lord takes all those who believe into his family and the price paid for the adoption was the shed blood of his natural son, Jesus. Which leads us to the second point of Lord's Day 13, namely our confession about Jesus, our Lord. Why do you call him our Lord? What is this all about? How is Jesus... Lord. You know, it's interesting. Every time someone makes profession of their faith, and every time people partake of Lord's Supper, like we will, the Lord willing, do next Sunday morning, 
they declare thereby that they recognize Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Now perhaps it's not so hard to talk about Jesus as Savior because we understand that it as meaning He saved us from our sins. He saved us as believers from an eternity of isolation from God. But then there's that Lord part. And this matter of Jesus being our Lord is perhaps something that's harder to grasp and certainly much harder to integrate into our daily lives. Because when you say Jesus is my Lord, that means we acknowledge that he has something to do with everything we do, are, or want to be. And that's scary. Saying that Jesus is our Lord means that we are totally in our hands, that he's our owner because he bought us. Now, when I think about that language or that concept of Jesus buying us, I, I think of those who have suffered slavery. I think of such work as 12 Years a Slave or the Book of Negroes, which I suspect many of you have heard about or, or read or maybe you've seen the film. One writer described slavery this way. By age 12, most slaves had begun a life of back-breaking fieldwork. A workday was from, as they said, can see to can't see. If the moon was full, a slave might have to keep working the rows and hauling cotton till midnight. His diet included little more than fatty salt meat and a little corn. Clothing was cheap fabric called Negro cloth. Housing consisted of drafty, dirty, one-room shacks usually occupied by six to 12 people. Slaves were often sick, many had worms and rotting teeth, and professional slave breakers often viciously whipped unruly ones. Most slaves, as you may remember from those two stories and other, other stories, were sold at auction at least once in their lives. It's awful. White slaves, white shoppers, shoppers, to think that you're shopping for people, it's just weird. But anyway, white slaves would sometimes make slave men and women hop or jump to see if they were lively. And if they were, that would make a difference as to whether or not they would buy them. Like horses, slaves would have their teeth inspected and their rib cages poked. Couples were separated, children forcibly removed from parents. Some slaves were treated better than others, of course, but all were property, like animals, to be used or to, sold, to be sold as their owners or lords desire. Certainly what comes through loudly and clearly in this description of slaves is that they did not belong to themselves, but they belonged to their white owners. And the owner or the Lord seemed to have his hand and say in every part of the slave's life, there was no freedom in the life of a slave since as slaves they were expected to obey the master. Now this description of the slavery of blacks in the deep south in the United States helps us to understand something of what the Bible talks about when it talks about slavery or refers to slavery to being owned by someone or something other than ourselves. 
In fact, the Bible talks about two ways in which we are slaves. First of all, the Bible talks about people as being slaves to sin, owned by sin, run by sin. But once we are redeemed, then the Bible talks about a more positive form of slavery, namely being owned by God. Consider both forms of slavery with me for a moment, because that gets that to uh, the point of what it means that we confess Jesus is Lord. First of all, the negative form of slavery, namely being a slave to sin, as Romans 6, 6 talks about it. The Bible will tell us the fall into sin was so bad that it left Satan and sin with a stranglehold on the human race. In the fall, sin so overwhelmed our world that it restricts our movements, forcing us to do what it wants. It keeps people from serving the Lord, from loving the Lord, from wanting to do anything for Him. Sin keeps us in a mode where it's natural for us to hate God and our neighbor. Sin does not allow us to truly love as the Lord taught us concerning love, as per 1 Corinthians 13. And so in our sinful condition, we live cut off from God, ruled over by, ruled over by sin, much like slaves were cut off from freedom and liberty and ruled over by their masters. One could say that fallen people are in the clutches of sin like the slaves were in the clutches of their masters. And the destiny of those who remained in the hands of white masters was nothing but a continued life of hard work, misery, poverty, abuse, and probably an early death. The destiny of those who are in the hands of sin is a life of continued sin and rebellion resulting in eternal isolation from the fathers. Now, there are basically three ways in which a black slave in the United States could escape his or her slavery. One way was through the Underground Railroad, as it was called. This was a network of sympathetic and often not so sympathetic people who allowed for safe houses and who allowed for slaves to escape to places where there was no slavery. So parts of Canada, like the Dresden area in southwestern Ontario or Sackville, Nova Scotia, were recipients of those on the Underground Railroad. But it was dangerous, and it cost lives, and it cost money. And certainly there was terrible treatment in store for those trying to run away. Another way of escaping was through death. Slave funerals apparently were seldom sad occasions. Instead, they were celebrations of freedom and deliverance. But there was another way be freed from a life of slavery. History tells us that there were people who, though they abhorred the slavery practices of the day, nonetheless they would go and buy slaves at an auction. It wasn't like these people needed or wanted slaves. No, once they bought them for the required price, they would then set the slave free. And the name for such a transaction was redemption. Redemption means rescued by a ransom. It was a term referred to, it, it, it's a term referring to the act of delivering someone from evil and slavery by paying the required price. 
So liberty from the confines of the world of slavery, for some slaves at least, meant that someone else had to hand over large sums of money to the slave's owner in order for that slave to walk free. And so with gold and silver, the slaves were redeemed from their empty way of life, to use the words of Peter. The new owners could do whatever they wanted with their slaves. After all, they were now their property, and many gave freedom by grace to the ransomed slaves. Romans 6, 6 talks about fallen man as being a slave to sin and in a state of misery. There are no three possible escapes from the lordship of sin. Running away on an underground train of sorts will not help us. Dying while in the clutches of sin does not exactly solve the problem either. The only way out for a slave to sin is through redemption, through a price being paid. Peter writes, it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus Christ paid the ransom for us on our behalf and set us free. Through his life and death, Jesus paid the price necessary to redeem us, and the price was not paid to the former master. Jesus did not pay the ransom for our lives to the devil. No, the debt was paid to God since our debt for sin was against and with him. God's righteousness required that our sins be paid for, and Christ Jesus did precisely that for us. And once Jesus paid the debt, once Jesus paid the ransom, he removed us from the clutches of Satan. He set us free from the tyranny of the devil, says Lord's Day 1, and instead now made us Jesus' possession. This is the positive form of slavery as found in the Bible. Answer 34. He bought us body and soul to be his very own. We now belong to him. We say that in Lord's Day 1. We say that in this Lord's Day. He paid the full price of, of his own life to make us brothers and sisters. He adopted us as children of the Father. When we understand that, when we get that, that he adopted us as his children, that he paid the price for us, then what else can we confess other than what Thomas said? My Lord and my God. Before, says the Bible, while we were in the clutches of sin and Satan, our lives were empty. That is to say, they didn't lead anywhere other than to death and eternal separation from God. And there is no security. But now that Jesus has declared us to be his, we have been redeemed, bought, moved out of an empty existence, out of darkness, into light, into the life of fellowship with the Lord. This answer 34, if you have it before you, you can see of the Heidelberg Catechism, hails back to answer one, I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that new status cost a lot. It cost Jesus his life. So Jesus is truly our Lord. 
We are now literally his property by virtue of the act by which he bought us back. And this is a great comfort to the Christian. For now we can confess using the words of the songwriter, Abba, Father, I belong only unto you. And in him we are secure, as Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And Jesus, when he bought us with his blood, does not do the same that those opposed to slavery did when they brought the slaves and set them free. Jesus did not set us free in the sense that he now lets us run where and as we like and makes us fend for ourselves. No, he is Lord, remember? So now he calls us to live in response to him and to recognize him as our owner who continues to care for us. It's not the case that once Jesus has bought us as his own that he ignores us and lets us find our own way. No, he continues to care for us, leading and guiding each step of the way. But it's also not the case that once we are, known, that once we are his, we no longer have to worry or give any thought to the lives that we conduct. On the contrary, to call Jesus Christ Lord is to understand that our whole life is given to him. Nothing less. So if you give him your soul, you also have to give him everything else you have. Your talents, your children, your money, your farm, your house, your education, your jobs, your cars, everything. After all, you don't belong to them. You belong to him. If we call Jesus Lord, that means we have to place the sight of our eyes, and think about all that, the implications of that, the hearing of our ears, the speech of our mouths, the actions of each of the members of our body from head to toe under his jurisdiction. They must all serve him. God demands 100% obedience. He doesn't request us to be holy, saying, please try, okay, try your best. Please try to be holy. No, we read in 1 Peter, be holy, because I am holy. That's his command. And the Lordship of Jesus Christ calls for consistent Christian living. Which means that we cannot say that our involvement in church, in whatever way that might happen, or our involvement with Christian schools, that belongs to Christ. And of course, he has something to do with that. But for the rest, how I amuse myself, how I spend my money, how I deal with my employees or my neighbors, what I study, where I work, who I love, and so on, that all belongs to me. And I will decide what happens in those areas of life. If we have areas in our lives over which we maintain control and about which we declare Jesus has little or no say, then we basically deny the basic confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
We can never escape the radical choice. Either Jesus Christ is Lord of all, or he is Lord of nothing. Either we belong to him in all of our activities of life, or not. Interesting, the Bible doesn't allow for any middle ground. And that means, of course, that each of us are going to have to examine our lives in terms of our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we belong to him. And maybe this is a good week to do that as we prepare to come to the Lord's table next Sunday. Remember that lordship means ownership. When we say that Jesus owns us, because he bought us. That means our lives are going to be or ought to be lived quite differently from those who are still slaves to sin. First Peter 2 verse 1, Therefore rid yourself of all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and so many other things. Serve the Lord with thanksgiving. Don't involve yourself with things of darkness or with those things that are opposed to the Lord in the coming of his kingdom. For that which is not of the Lord really ought to be excluded from our lives. One who is in Christ, born anew, bought by Jesus' blood, is one who has been redeemed from slavery to sin and the devil and one who has been placed in the freedom now to serve the Lord. One who has been redeemed moves from slavery to sin to slavery to the Lord. From the negative to the positive, from darkness into light. From no service to service which brings glory to his name. Jesus Christ, the Lord whom we serve, the Lord whom we confess, has bought us to be his very own. We are God's adopted sons and daughters. So live as if you are. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Amen. Father in heaven, your word challenges us. We praise you that we're your adopted sons and daughters by grace in Christ Jesus, who then is our Lord. And I guess that's the part that really challenges us. And because we so often live our lives as if you're not Lord at all. We pray, O oh Lord, that our confession may be seen and may be true in the lives that we live. You are the great King. You are the great Lord. We pray, Father, that in all we do, you would receive the honor and the glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.